Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be hearing from Dr. Barry Creamer. Dr. Creamer has served as president of Criswell College since 2014, after spending a combined 10 years as both a member of the faculty and as the vice president of academic affairs. A trained philosopher and historian, Dr. Creamer holds a BA in English from Baylor University, an MDiv from Criswell College, and a PhD in Humanities from the University of Texas at Arlington. For more than 20 years, Dr. Creamer pastored churches across Texas, and he continues to preach conferences, teach lay audiences, and serve as interim pastor for churches in transition. Dr. Creamer has spent over a decade hosting his own podcast, Coffee with Creamer, a program covering relevant issues in ethics, ministry, and worldview, and has served on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. His writing has been featured on numerous print and electronic platforms. Without further ado, Dr. Barry Creamer. Uh, this is convocation. We meet. Uh, we, some of our professors will wear regalia so that we can uh, say to you that we understand that this semester is not ours, but the Lord's. And we give, as faculty and administrators, ourselves not just to a semester to be able to serve and to work and to have a job, uh, but in response to the Lord's calling on our life. And we want this semester to belong to Him. We want you to have the same opportunity to invite the Lord's guidance into your semester so that what you do in studying and working in all that you accomplish this semester is a part of you simply being conformed to His will for your life and His calling on your life. That's the purpose of our convocation. So what I want to do is just share with you a psalm. I am personally working through the psalms in my sermons. Uh, when I go to preach in different places, I'll go out to Frisco this Sunday to preach somewhere, and then I'll go out to Amarillo the week after that, and I'll go to Kilgore the week after that, and I'm going to Longview the week after that. And when I'm in different places to preach, uh, I always choose uh, just the next text in whatever book I'm going through in my personal studying uh, of the Word. And so I'm working my way through the Psalms, and I happen to be on Psalm 32 right now. So we're going to look at the 32nd Psalm uh, this morning in our chapel service, our convocation, and see what it would say to us about dedicating this semester to the Lord. So Psalm 32 Starting in verse 1, I'm reading in this case from the ESV. And uh, in order to save time, because chapel is a slightly abbreviated uh, service that we have, uh, in order to save time, let's kind of discuss the structure of the psalm with you as we go through it. So I want you to notice ahead of time that the psalm is written mostly in couplets in verses being paired together. So verses 1 and 2 are together, 3 and 4 are together. 
and so on. The, the only exception being verse 5, which is by itself. So verse 5 serves as a complete idea in itself. And then 6 and 7, 8 and 9, 10 and 11, and you're done with the psalm. The first two verses are an uh, overarching sort of a fait accompli that he's describing where he says, this is the way I want it to be, and in some ways about him, this is the way it is at the end of the story. So here's the overarching picture. You'll see that as we read it. And in the, at the very end, but it's about him, clearly, in verses 1 and 2, but at the very end, it's a broader statement about uh, what remains as a result of the psalm for those who heed it and for those who don't. So verses 10 and 11, you can see, are also more about the community than simply about the one person who's described in what David has experienced and what he's saying would be the truth about anybody else. So that encapsulates the sermon, the first two verses, then the last two verses, and in the middle, what you have is two different sections. This first section in verses 3 through 5, 3, 4, and 5, which is entirely about his personal experience. He describes using himself as the model, and David is the Messiah of the Old Testament. I mean, Jesus is not the son of Solomon. He's the son of David. I know he's the son of Solomon too, just like you all do. The point is, he's not called that. He's called the son of David because David is the messianic figure, you know, that we're given. And so as the Messiah, he's expressing something beyond himself, but he's expressing it very personally. So as we're reading it, notice that in the first half of the psalm, it's about him doing things. I kept silent. I groaned and so on. In, in the last half of the psalm, before you get to the encapsulation at the bottom, in verses 6 and following, he begins to address the whole congregation, and it's more about the community and a transformation of the community. And so I want to see how all those fit together as we're reading through it and then as we talk through little elements of it. So the first verse, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. The idea is being lifted. Blessed is the one whose transgression is taken off of him, whose sin is covered up. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So we have what the blessed man is like. Then his experience, originally like this, verse 3, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In verse 5, the change. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Then in verse 6, he speaks to those around him. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found or when you are being sought. Surely, in the rush of great waters, even the judgment that comes, they'll not reach that godly one who called out to you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you. This can go two different ways. but Most likely, he seems to be saying it to his congregation. Perhaps Yahweh is interrupting the psalm and saying it to him. But it seems he's saying it to his congregation. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and my eye will be upon you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding which has to be curbed with bit and bridle or it won't stay near to you. 
Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in Yahweh. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So let's just go back and make a couple of observations about uh, each of these little elements that were given, and, uh, and then we will dedicate this uh, semester to the Lord. So verses 1 and 2, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. He does use a lot of different words for his sin. We'll come back to that in just a moment, especially in the second section. But here you can already see it. He's, his transgression is forgiven. His sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. So his transgression is forgiven. So this, this, is, the, this is the blessed man, the one who has received the blessings from God. And he's a man with transgression and sin and iniquity. And he's not practicing deceit, the only one that's given to us in sort of an absolute form. But about his trans, I'll come back to that in a minute too. But in his transgression, he's forgiven. And in his sin, he's covered. And in his iniquity, God doesn't hold it against him. And then in his spirit, there's no deceit, which we'll clarify in a few moments. So that all of this is just, you know, a two verse way of us acknowledging what we ought to acknowledge every day when we get out of bed. Really simple and straightforward. Thank you, God, for forgiving my sins that I have breath today, that I live today, is a gift from God. It is, if I woke up in a bed too small for me and didn't have pretzels today, the best that I should have expected. I mean, that, that's the best I should have expected. The fact that I got up and I got to go to a place that does have pretzel for me is just gravy. You know, how could this even happen? That God is gracious enough to give us breath is what this is acknowledging. The man who's blessed is not a man who was without sin. It's a man whose sin was covered a man who was forgiven. You get the idea. It's very simple. The second idea then, he takes that and makes it personal to him. So he says, for in contrast to that, when I wasn't being blessed, it was like this, verse 3 and 4. This is the original position, if we were to use that language about it. Because when I kept silent, what's the, that the, this is an immediate contrast with the language that was just used about the blessed man, Right? This is why, even though all the other terms about his sinfulness are related immediately to how he's forgiven and so on, so his transgression is forgiven, his sin is covered, uh, his iniquity is not counted against him, and in his spirit there's no deceit. It almost makes it sound like, and the reason all of that took place was because he was one honest man. This guy was just so honest that God had to forgive his sin. I mean, who could hold it against him, you know? It's not like that at all. The very next phrase is the contrast with this man who now in his heart has no deceit, and that is how he started, when I kept silent. That's the contrast with the deceit. He was a man of deceit. He hid his sin. It doesn't matter which sin he's talking about here. I've heard people try to interpret this passage, and I say try not to be insulting, but to say, uh, to give it a specific application, you know, to say this is David expressing his experience of venereal disease or something like that. I don't think that's at all what's going on. I mean, I can't prove it's not, but it, it just doesn't seem to be the point of it. This is just David being David. At, you know, whenever he's expressing it, he's able to say it, whether it's about Bathsheba or about the census. Well, you know, I didn't want to deal with this. I didn't want to bring this to your attention. I didn't want to admit that I had failed in this way. So when I kept silent... 
The consequence was that my bones wasted away through my groaning, not my opening my mouth to speak the truth to you, but my groaning like Job or like others in the Old Testament who groan. They're saying words, but they're not the words that actually bring this acknowledgement of the truth that needs to be brought out. And so he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. And day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up. And he uses the analogy that for them is very, it would work perfectly in Texas. And that's because our climate is just like theirs. Now, I don't mean that, but that in the annual cycle, but I mean, the heat we face is like their heat. And so when you walk out after chapel today and you're in the parking lot, as Luis was recently, and I didn't ask if I could share this. How much, Luis, are you back there? Are you good? Give me a nod if it's okay for me to tell this. Okay, thank you. So uh, I'm not going to tell any details, just this. But Luis was outside at an event not too long ago and he passed out in the heat. It was so stinking hot, and it's in Texas. How hot was it, right? That, like it's a joke. Luis passed out from the heat. Luis is a man who I have seen out in our parking lot in the middle of this summer just soaking in the heat because his office was too cold. In the middle of our parking lot in the middle of summer, that's who he is, and the heat was so bad that he passed out. You've walked out and felt like it was an oven, right, in this heat? David's just using that analogy to say, when I was keeping my sins covered, when I was lying about who I actually am in my deceit, I was the one who was suffering. Your hand was heavy upon me day and night, and my strength was drying up like you would expect something to dry up if you left it out in the middle of our parking lot in the middle of summer. That's where I was in my life. And what came from it? In verse 5. This is the exchange. This is the uncovering, the lifting of our sin. And therefore, the covering of our sin, you'll see. I acknowledged my sin to you. The direct contrast with verse 3. And now, he's not deceiving anymore. And this is the great thing about it. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover. Notice in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. In verse 1, we know the object here is that the Lord covers up our sin. This is what He does in redeeming us. He covers up our sin. You say, oh, I, I don't think that's... I mean, that's the language that's used constantly. And it's used here very clearly. He covers our sin. And specifically, David says, when I acknowledged my sin to you, when I took the cover off of it, that's when you took the sin I thought I could cover up but was really killing me. And you covered it up in the way that actually takes care of it. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover. You do, but I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you, and then using again the same image, the same word, he says, lifted. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So when you go back to verse 1, that's what he said. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. So he's using those words to say this is what God does when he forgives our sins. He also covers our sin. So we, in our selfish desire, wanted to cover up our sin in a way that made us liars. 
And so in our deception, we kept all of the burden of that sin in ourselves, and the Lord's, even the Lord's hand himself was heavy against us with the weight of his judgment against us and our own sin bearing down on us. And like the heat of summer, we're being dried up to perish in this place. And he says, when I finally took that cover off and allowed you to see what was going on, not only did you forgive my sin, but you covered it up in the way you do to bring that healing and forgiveness that only you can bring. He is focused. Look how much he's focused on what was wrong with him. In verse 5, he uses the word sin and iniquity and transgressions and and iniquity again and then sin again, all in verse 5, five different times. But in all of those saying, when I stopped covering it, then you covered it. When I stopped hiding it, you forgave it. I will confess, I will lift up in these words my transgressions to you, Yahweh. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is all personal experience. This is what he himself has encountered. I I pray that you encounter that. I, I know that you've encountered it at some times in your life, that you've experienced the conviction that comes with our violations of what God's called us to do and the clear statements in Scripture about what he expects of our lives. I know that if you have dealt with that, you've experienced the reality that in the moment you actually open up to God and stop hiding the things that are true about you and say, Lord, I need help, that he rushes in to deliver you, to show you that he is faithful, to forgive and to cover. I hope you know that fully. And I hope that if you're holding back from him today, that you know during the prayer in this day to say, I'm not going to start this semester with an undue burden. I'm going to be honest with the Lord. This is where I am. I need forgiveness. And so this is the idea in verses 6 and 7. And this, and this is, I mean, in verse 5, so that the transition has happened for David so that what he described in verses 1 and 2 is now, we realize, himself. So David, our messianic figure, is saying, my transgression is forgiven. My sin is covered. I'm blessed by the Lord because he doesn't count iniquity against me. And I have no more deceit. I'm open. I'm an open book. Here we are. And so he describes himself as the deceiver who's now been forgiven and covered and so on in verses 3 through 5. But in verse 6, he shifts gears and says, therefore, let everyone who is godly. Now, he speaks to a specific godly person to say to everyone, each of you can be this person who's being blessed. In a a communal sense, I mean, this is a very strong communal nature of, of, of Israelite thought, of just historical thought at this period. And yet he is saying to the individuals who are there, I want each of you to be that blessed and godly person in this community. And as the messianic figure, he's the one who can say it to them. Therefore, let everyone who is godly. And so the transition here, starting in verse 6, is for him to say, this is the blessing that God has given me as an individual. Now I'm turning to all of you and saying, look what you can have. And so he says in verse 6, therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found or when you are sought 
Surely in the rush of great waters, they will not reach him. Just a, a statement about judgment. There is a real judgment. He's, he doesn't just say, oh, we don't have to worry about our sins. It's no big deal. God would never judge us. He's so merciful. It just would never happen. No, he says that there is a judgment coming on our sins. And yet in our confession to him, our acknowledgement of our sin, we can rejoice and know that the waters would never reach us of the flood of the judgment, would never reach us. So in verse 7, you're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And this is what he's expressing to his community. In other words, when he says in verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Well, it's not God being deliverant, delivered. It's the shouts of those who he said all of them should be offering prayers to God at a time when he can be found. And by the end of the psalm, we'll be saying, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And so this is him telling us, I'm, I am experiencing this forgiveness from God and this blessing of having transparent relationship with him, and I'm here to lead you in that same direction. And when he says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found to the Lord, you may be found. Everyone who is godly are the things that are in verses 1 and 2, blessed, but with forgiven transgressions and covered sins, iniquitous, but it's not counted against you, and then without deceit. But as we pointed out in the very next verse, one who originally was covering his sins with silence. I sat at a table with a man not too long ago, about a month ago, two, about a month ago, older man who wanted to meet because of the Uvalde shooting. So just after the Uvalde shooting, uh, he, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is going to sound odd, but this is exactly how the, why the conversation happened and how it took place. He wanted to meet with me to talk about whether the person who pulled the trigger, who killed the students, in Uvalde uh, was going to go to hell, was going to be condemned for eternity uh, because he felt like it was such an act of evil that there needed to be some way of understanding that this could be made right through that kind of judgment. And that was the best he could think of, you know, would he go to hell? And so we sat down and I said, you know, I don't know his relationship with God or any of the things that come from it, but all the evidence says he will go to hell because he was a murderer, just like any murderer would. Revelation 21.8, I opened up to him, showed it to him, and said, yes, a person who doesn't act like that does go to hell. And he said, well, that's, that's good. That's good because I just can't think of much more evil that could happen. And, he was, and he's right. I mean, it's hard to conceive of something more despicable. And so I said, it's a, really, it's a really interesting verse when you read it, you know. It does say, and all of these murderers would have their place in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. And I said, here's, here's the whole verse. You know, and, and, I, and I read to him the part that says, and, and, I, and you get to the end of the list, you know, it's all the idolaters and the unbelievers and the so on. And then it says, and all liars. So he was listening to all the rest of it, and I'm not, I didn't even invite this. I just read it to him. And I said, and I said right there, it says, and all murderers, right? And he said, yeah, yeah, and that's good. And then I got to the end and I said, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burns with fire and brimstone. 
And he said, all liars. That's me. That includes me. And, that, and in, that, in that meeting, at that table, he expressed his faith in Christ and committed himself to trust Christ for his salvation. Now, he was, he's an older man. I have no idea how many times in his background he's had that conversation, how many times he's made that commitment. I still know the man. I'm still following up with him. I don't know where to lead. But I will say this. You know, this psalm, as much as any in the Old Testament, any that are in the book, make it really clear that when he says godly man, he doesn't mean man who never committed sins. He means man who was forgiven, person who acknowledged the truth and received the grace of God. So, in verses 8 and 9, he says this, the pertinent part for us right now. I will instruct you. And I, I, I think it's right to read this in the way that says that David is saying this to his congregation. Meaning, as he's writing the psalm, he's giving every reader, every singer, every person who, who brings this in performance to the, to the place of worship, to the synagogue, to wherever it is that he's giving them a reason to hear him saying, in these words, I am instructing you and teaching you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you and in the way, and this is why some people think this is the Lord saying it to David because this language is so familiar to us. And my eye will be upon you, with my eye upon you. Because the Lord says that all the time. His eyes go to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Things like that, you know, the language is there. But that language invites both, both considerations. Because as this messianic figure, as this one who stands for the people of Israel and says, I have been made right with God and I want you to have that relationship with God as well. As that messianic figure who's bringing the truth to them and paying the price. For them to have that relationship with God as that figure, he is saying to them more than, so uh, when I was a kid growing up, and I realized how short on time it is, I'll, I'll keep going. That was sort of self, that was good. That was, it's the opposite of the message I wanted to communicate, but it's true. Um, but I'm not going to keep going indefinitely. I'm almost done. Um, the point is that when I was a kid growing up, you know, the, oh, be careful, little hands, what you do, oh, be careful, little feet, where you go, oh, be careful, and you know, whatever. The father up above is looking down in love. Well, I didn't, you know, the, the word love was there, but I mean, that's not what I heard. What I heard and the way we sang it, and I don't know what they meant, but I know what I heard and what we sang. It was the father up above is looking down in harsh judgment. <laughs> oh, be careful what you do while he's watching. Uh, you know, that was, that was how we understood the song. I mean, it was terrifying. God's watching. You better, be, better behave, you know. There, I mean, that, that's certainly true. He does look down from the precipice of heaven and find that there are none righteous. That's true. Psalm 53, Psalm 14 are true. But I, I don't think the message here is, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and I'm going to keep my eye on you, buddy. This is the, the idea of the Lord's eye is upon you, which is so constantly used in the Old Testament, and it is, and it is used in other ways too, but it, it is so repeatedly used to say, I am scouring the earth, searching for someone who is dependent on me so that I can help them. I will rescue you. His eyes run to and fro through the whole earth. He says this to Asa, you know the king. His eyes run to and fro throughout the whole earth, seeking those whose heart is perfect toward him, meaning whose heart fully relies on him. Literally, the words are used in that text. 
if you're fully relying on him. So you, you come to this point where you say, I'm desperately needy, Lord. I'm willing to confess the truth, but I know I'm going to lose everything if I do. I know I'm going to give up everything if I open up and I'm honest about what's happened and think about the things David went through. In acknowledging those things, we put ourselves in a perilous position where we can lose. And the Lord says, if you'll do that, I'll be the one who covers your sin, not you. I'll be the one who lifts it off of you instead of this heavy weight that you're carrying. And I will be looking for how to deliver you from the things you fear so greatly. So instead of carrying the fear and the anxiety of our failure, we march out and say, yeah, but the Lord's on our side. <laughs> so, I mean, what better position could we be in? And so he says, so I will instruct you and I'll teach you in the way you should go and I'll counsel you and I'll keep my eye on you. Don't resist. Don't be like a donkey without understanding. I know he said horse or mule. I know there's a difference. But you get the idea in our culture, the expression is donkey, right? So don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding by which you have to be curbed with bit and bridle. Don't make it so someone has to force this on you. But instead, walk with the Lord, open to Him, and allow Him to bless you with His forgiveness. And then in verse 10, the choices that are really clear here remain. This is what it all comes down to because what we're being invited to is confession and forgiveness and deliverance and then rejoicing. Those are the steps that are given to us in the psalm. But it's not just for yourself. So normally when we think of it, we only think of it for ourselves. So when we had our faculty workshop the other day, Dr. Graham was leading the faculty and preparing for the semester in different ways. And one of the things we talked about is how important it is that we learn as, as faculty and administrators and, and leaders to listen, to hear, to understand that needs are different and different people have different ideas and those ideas need to be expressed and we're an institution of higher education for crying out loud and so we want people to be able to express their ideas and bat them around and students to be able to say, but this is the way I understand it and have an honest debate about it and honest intellectual engagement. We want all of that. But even with all of that being present, we have called this faculty because the Lord has transformed them and equipped them and given them wisdom so that they can sit down with you and say, I didn't get this for myself. I want to help you. I want to share it with you. So you have professors who want to give themselves and what God has brought in their lives to you. They want to share that with you. And I'm saying to you in exactly the same way. You're, you're a Criswell College student, so that doesn't mean you're a superior and an elite class of people. But it does mean you've got something serious going on in your relationship with God or your sense of calling on, on your life from God, or you're very confused about what's happening in every single class that you're taking, you know? So let's go on the assumption of the former that you do have a sense that God has a purpose for your life and He's called you. You think that's just for you? Obviously not. And this is just making that point, that in the same way the Lord speaks to, directly to David and says to him, Take, stop being a mule. You know, using Nathan or Gad or whoever the prophet is that comes to him and rebukes him, he's willing to accept it and then hear it and then he confesses and the Lord blesses him and forgives him and takes off the burden and then he's able to rejoice and he turns to the congregation and he says to them, so do the same, open up and confess and accept it and he becomes what Yahweh was to him, to them. 
And so as that figure going to them, he says to them, and we're supposed to be that to the nations. And so in the same way, I'm saying to you, what Yahweh has worked, what the Lord has worked in our lives and in our professors' lives and that they share with you, he's worked in your life so that it becomes a part of your community around you as well. But it begins by you laying down your life here and saying, I'm not going to cover it up anymore. I'm not going to hide it anymore. I'm not going to carry it myself anymore. I'm going to be honest with the Lord and in confession to Him. I'm not talking about public confession. That's between you and the people you need to talk to about however you offended them. I'm just talking about you and the Lord. You give it to the Lord and you let Him lift and cover and bless. And then you rejoice. And so verses 10 and 11, we conclude, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. And so I'm going to ask all the faculty members, please, to stand. So adjuncts and full-time faculty, if you guys would stand, you, and by guys, I mean guys and girls, you know what I'm saying. Okay, thank you. Uh, and if you would just kind of look around the room, you can see y'all are distributed pretty well. Some of you are clumped together in a couple of places. If y'all could spread out right now and just find an area where there are some students that don't have a faculty member right in their midst, if you would please uh, move yourselves around to do that, see if you can find somebody. Thank you. And while they're doing that, this is what I want to say to you, and each faculty member is going to lead their prayer time however they want to, completely up to you guys. We're just going to take about five minutes right now to sit to, to, together in this room, dedicate this semester to the Lord. So your faculty members, hopefully in your prayers, you will pray for them as students, for your faculty members who are, who are with you right there, but also the ones who are leading your classes and you faculty members for the students who are there, that we dedicate this to the Lord. And then we're going to close with a song in just a moment. So I'm going to lead in prayer first, and then you all have your prayer times together. Father, please take this word from Psalm 32 and help us not to be mules and horses resisting the direction that you give us, but instead transparent with you, honest and open, to accept the forgiveness and the blessings you give that allow us then to rejoice in you, to have the burden lifted and our sins covered. Lord, may you be honored this whole semester. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.